Hello, it's so good to have you with us here at Leadership for Sustainability. This is the podcast where we help you lead on sustainability to deliver results and make a real difference in the world. I'm Osbert Lancaster, longtime sustainability consultant and trainer, and co founder of Realize Earth. I love facilitating sustainability workshops. There's this real sense of excitement as participants work together to make plans, generate ideas and find ways forward. Facilitation is all about bringing people together, often people who don't know each other, and creating a space where they can spark off each other, think differently and create something much bigger than any of us could do alone. At its heart, Facilitation is about bringing out the best in other people, and that's what we need to make real progress on sustainability. That's why I believe it's a crucial skill for sustainability leaders. I've been facilitating workshops on sustainability for many years, and while I still get a buzz from it, the way we design the events and the activities we use have become second nature, just tools along with others in our kit bag. Recently, Morag and I were leading a workshop for the Coalition for Wind Industry Circularity, or QUIC. It was a bit of a surprise when participants came up to us afterwards, saying how they'd really liked our approach and the activities we'd used, and asking if it was okay if they used them. Yes, of course it was. Chatting to Morag on the way home, we realised that the stuff we take for granted is new and unfamiliar to many people and that it could be really helpful if we shared what we were doing with other sustainability leaders. So, to record this episode of Leadership for Sustainability, Morag and I sat down and talked through how we went about designing and facilitating the workshop for Quick. We hope you find it useful in your work. Morag, it's good to have you with us again and to talk about the facilitation stuff we did together recently. Do you want to set the scene for that? Yeah, one of my favourite subjects, facilitation. In my current role, working with the renewable energy industry in Scotland, there is a group of people who formed a group called the Coalition for Wind Industry Circularity. And this is a real recognition, particularly from the onshore wind sector in Scotland, that we have a real ambition to be a green industry. We're producing green, clean energy, but... The wind turbines that we use to do that have a finite life and at some point they will need to be decommissioned and there are no processes yet for how you recycle them, how you reuse them or any of these things and we're really going to need that. So it was a group of people who came together and said like let's do this and the people who've come together are you know, brilliant. They have amazing technical skills and they understand how you would do this in ways that I never could. But when we started talking about this, they, they were hugely anxious about this workshop that they were going to have about how they would start to build this coalition, how they bring more people on board. And the real anxiety is we don't just need people talking about this. We need people doing this. How do we do that? And this is where I had come forward and said, this is something I've done a lot. This is something I'd really like to contribute to this process. And I would be happy to work with my colleague, Osbert. We can design you a facilitation plan for this workshop and how you would do this. That's how we got started and how we became involved, helping people who had huge amounts of technical skill work through what can be difficult territory for all of us. The sort of human territory of thoughts and feelings and commitment and how 
enthusiastic people are about things, how willing to get involved and then how you work with that dynamic of making a sustainability project happen. So as well as designing it, we actually facilitated the session on the day. Several of the participants came up to us after and said, that was really interesting. Can you tell me more about how you do X, why you did this exercise and so on? So that's why I thought it'd be nice just to share how we designed the facilitation plan and the main activities we carried out. So how we started off the whole process is we got together with a group who are called ENMIS, which is the National Manufacturing Institute of Scotland. It's based out of Strathclyde University. And they had been working on the coalition up to that point. And we got together and we had a planning meeting. And the very first key question we had to ask them was, what does success look like for you for this event? That's always the crux of planning any sort of workshop like this. Where are people at the moment? And where are you trying to get them to? Where do you want them to be at the end of that process? And obviously there's, you know, practical questions around who's attending and numbers and all that sort of stuff. So what we decided success would look like, 10 people stepping forward to be actively involved in the steering group to take this initiative forward. Bearing in mind, there are about 60 to 50 to 60 people attending this event. And then we wanted at least 10 other people to indicate that they would like to be actively involved once the opportunities and the roles within the project were a bit clearer, because it's a project that's still forming, how all the working groups will be set up and so on is not entirely clear. With that, you know, with that idea of success in our minds, we then sat down to work out, well, how are we going to do that? How are we going to take people from where they are now to stepping forward and getting actively engaged in stuff, bearing in mind that the majority of the people of that 50 or 60 people we were expecting weren't aware in any great detail of the whole project. There'd been a, there was a small number of people there who had been actively involved who were some of the instigators, but the great majority... They maybe received some papers, but they hadn't really been actively involved in this up until now. So how are we going to get them from where they were now to actively stepping forward? So what were the key things we felt were important for that facilitation plan, Morag? I think two things that are always important in every facilitation plan, whenever you're doing a process like this. The first one is, to use the technical term, grounding and levelling giving everyone the same grounding in what's going on and bringing everyone up to a certain level of understanding of what's going on. No great magical technique to that. It is literally just the introductory section and the scene setting. What's this whole thing about? What's happened before? Where have we gotten to? Why are we all here? So again, that bit is very straightforward, very common thing that we would find in most meetings, whether it's facilitated or not. But as we've talked about in quite a few other podcasts, one of the key things that will make a project like this work and one of the key foundations is the strength of the professional relationships between people and also that shared understanding and shared trust. So again, you know, you and I have done this many, many times over the years and the times that we've facilitated together. The next session that we always start with is giving people the opportunity to talk to each other about why are you interested in this thing? What brought you to this workshop? To begin to get that shared understanding. And not only did we have people talking to each other about it, we then did that feedback session where people would begin to you know, say to the room, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in that. So people in the room could go, oh yeah, you know, they're here for the same reason as I am. Oh, that's interesting because I'm here for this, they're here for that, but I could see how those things cross over. So yeah, those two initial steps making sure everybody's on the same page and understands where we're all at, and then giving people the opportunity to talk to each other 
and start to understand where they're all coming from within the room. I think one of the things that I've noticed when working with other facilitators or with people who are maybe less experienced facilitators, there's a real, there's a real tension because they've got so much information to share. They want everyone to know everything about the background to this. Um, on one hand, they're trying to just like dump more and more information. And also they're like, well, if we get people starting to talk, they'll never stop. And it'll sort of take over and it'll get out of control and people will start getting on their hobby horses and all the rest of it. Or, well, no, no one's really interested. No one's going to talk. There'll be a deadly silence. So the challenge here really is, first of all, for the people who are giving that framing and leveling stuff. And Paul from Enmis took that role on because he was leading on that project. That made sense. He did this, did this really well. It was like, you know, giving as little information as possible but enough information that's needed to enable people to participate effectively. So it's like, not what else can I tell them? It's what can I take out <laughs> they don't need? That's the, that's the critical thing there. Always having that discipline of what's just the key things people in this room need to know to be able to participate fully and keeping that discipline. Because, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm I am one of those people. I... You know, when I know a lot about a subject, the temptation for me to try and tell everybody all the things that I know and then trying to keep that discipline of, OK, what do you need to know? And you don't need to know every single thing that I know. Yeah. And it's just like, what do they need to know at this particular time? Absolutely. So and then this thing about getting people talking, this is probably the activity that we use the most at the beginning of any any workshop is getting people talking in pairs. The instructions are really quite simple. Turn to your neighbour, someone you don't know, you don't work with, and explain why you're here today. Give them five minutes to have that conversation. It's not a big amount of time out of the programme, but everyone in the room is then talking, which is really important for later on. Everyone's like, they've got some confidence that their voice is important and they will be heard because they've started doing it early. And yeah people can start hearing about why other people are there. Going back to what we keep on banging on about, people can start understanding other people's motivations and interests rather than assuming either that they think the same as them or they think something else that they don't know about. And as facilitators, it's also so important if when we can hear that is we know much better who's in the room, what's important to them, and we can start adapting you know, our language or, or, you know, the process a little bit if necessary. What we did quite simply was you know, turn to your neighbour, someone you don't know, talk about why you came here today for five minutes. And then because we had 50 or 60 people, we certainly couldn't get everyone to tell their story of that. And we just invited a few people to tell us why you're here today. And to make sure we got other voices in the room, we said, anyone else here for a different reason? anyone from a different sector. So just to try and get that sort of variety in the room. And that was, yeah, I think that was, that was, that was really quite powerful. It is, but interestingly, I don't know about your experience, Osbert, but this is the session that people who are feeling the pressure of time often push back against. They're like, oh, do we really need to do that? You know, we've got a tight agenda. Maybe we could drop this one out. But as you say, that setting the precedent right at the very beginning of your meeting, your event, your workshop of active participation. 
everybody's talking at that point to each other, everybody being expected to contribute and put something in is a really important marker, particularly for what we were trying to do in this event, which is what I suspect people are doing in many of the meetings that they would do in this kind of context. It is about cultivating active participation. And as we've said, that depends on relationship building. So yeah, it can be a one that people find a, a little strange because it's not always a usual part of a professional meeting, but I would emphasize perhaps the most important session that you have right at the very beginning of any group working thing that you're doing like this. I think people often fearful about it for quite a good reason, actually, apart from it's like it takes up time, mm -hmm. is that they're fearful of people getting on their soapbox. And they're also fearful of people just like having verbal diarrhea and telling the whole history of their career. And the trick, I think, if there is one around this, is like being really clear about the question. It's like, don't tell us who you are. Say, why have you taken time out of your busy day to come to this particular workshop? You know, something which really gets them to focus in. So a really specific question. And then when you're taking the feedback from the whole room, if someone does start going on too much, thanks for that, James, but we really need to hear from other people in the room as well. They're just having that confidence to close people down nicely and move on to someone else. But you can only do that if you've given a really clear instruction first. Otherwise, they've got a perfectly legitimate reason to keep on talking if you've asked them to introduce themselves. Definitely. Clear question, clear time constraints. So you don't get waffling and you don't get hobby horses. OK, so so then the next thing we did, which was this this guided visualization, I think quite a few people were quite intrigued by this. So you led this section more, Agden, to take us through this. What is it and how do you do it? What, why, why were we doing it? Yeah, this one was really fun because I had several people sidle up to me afterwards and went, oh, that was really great. Can, can I use that? Can I do that with my team? Do you mind if I borrow the technique? It's like, yep, this is a standard facilitation technique. Off you go. Again, in a professional context, this sounds like quite a, a strange thing to do. And sometimes people are a bit put off by hearing it termed as guided visualization because they, they often associate that with guided meditation and so on. But it was literally a little bit of storytelling. And to, to give people some context for how we were doing this, the whole point of this coalition that we're bringing together is to establish a, a circular economy model in Scotland for, for wind. And the sort of date for that was 2035, that they're looking to have things up and running. So I told a little imaginary story about, imagine it's 2035 and everything that we're working for here has been achieved. And then we talked through the different elements of that and asked people to think about, well, what that's, what's that like for you? What's it like for your organisation? How are we all working together? And then the key question comes of, and if you look back from where we are in 2035 to where we are today, what were the key steps that happened to get us there? And if somebody in 2035 came to you and asked you, can you tell me how we got to where we are now? What would you tell them? And the key point of that is to get people thinking strategically in the long term, where are we trying to get to? What's our destination? have that very clearly in their mind and then backcast to, okay, what does it take to get from where we are now to where we want to be and start to think out those key steps. And although 
saying that you're telling people an imaginary story sounds quite diffuse and woolly way to go about things. It's actually a very, very effective way to get people to begin to think strategically about how you bridge from where you are to where you want to be and how you would know what where you want to be actually is. I think one of the things which was really important in this particular context, and it will be in others, but less so in other contexts, is being really specific about what that vision is. And this was something which came up in the in the planning meeting originally. It was like, you know, we don't want to be talking about just like some sort of amorphous sort of concept of we want a circular economy. We need to be really specific. What actually is a circular economy for the wind industry? What might be happening in 2035? So that people could really like imagine that in a very sort of concrete sort of way. So, you know, you, you spent some time going over some of the paperwork, you know, the papers that have been written and thinking, what would that actually look like? And, you know, summarising that in a very, you know, very, very, very succinctly and clearly. And this was a key place where the, the skill set of those people with the, the technical background who understood the actual key activities that needed to be happening, the, the key things that needed to be in place, all the bits that needed to be working, came together with a facilitation skill where you could both do that open process to get people using their imaginations, but it was very much built on data analysis and really robust research that had been done of the key parts that would need to be, as you say, part of that circular economy model. Yeah, just a little sidebar here. In some cases, being very specific is really important. But in other cases, we might quite legitimately be asking people to like to use their imaginations because we don't know, no one knows what that thing's going to look like. So there can sometimes be a case of like saying, imagine it is in this certain date and the problems have been solved that we're talking about have been solved. What might that be like? And people are going to come up with very different ideas and we'll discuss them later. But that's a very, that's same sort of visualization process, but it's a, there's a, it's a different, a different approach. Which is useful sometimes. Couldn't agree more. So one of the things that I've done with other people of you know thinking about the future of an organization, you know, in a sustainable world, what does our organization and our business model look like? So there is no technological research around that. There's a few stars to sail by in terms of you know we know the donut economics of so we've reduced our our climate change emissions and you know we're not producing waste and we're contributing to the social foundations and so on. But again, yeah, I absolutely agree that sometimes it's a very open-ended process. It just happened that this particular question was around putting in place manufacturing and technological stuff. So that made a sense in this context to go down that route. Guided visualization is a practice that we enjoy facilitating. It's great fun to take part, but I think just to re-emphasize here, we actually actively chose this for a particular reason. And that was because we wanted very specifically to get people thinking about the goal of this project and the benefits that it would bring to sustainability, to Scotland, to the industry and to their business. And get people thinking very specifically about you know, identifying the key challenges, the key opportunities and so on. It's a fun activity, but you choose it for a particular reason, not just because it's fun. So I just want to now focus into how one actually goes about running a visualization. So you told that story and people sat there at their tables. They'd have been invited to close their eyes if they wished. I think most of them did. 
and they were just listening to you and thinking in their heads, where else would they think? But they were sitting there and listening and thinking. And in this exercise, there was no discussion. There was no writing down. It was just you talking and people thinking and you giving them the time to actually think about that. So it's not a, and now let's talk about it. <laughs> that for me, when I'm actually doing it, this is one of the biggest challenges as Anyone who's listened to me on the podcast or ever heard me talking will know I'm Scottish. We talk very fast. I talk fast and enthusiastically as my natural disposition. But when you're doing this guided visualization, you deliberately need to slow down the pace at which you speak. So people have that opportunity to listen to what you've said and then think about it. And those pauses and also, and what I'm actually doing in my head when I say this is, uh, you know, take time to think about what this would be like for you and your company. And then I'm pausing and counting to 10 in my head. And if you're standing in front of a room full of people, being silent for the count of 10 can feel like an absolute eon of silence. But actually, it's very short. But it is important to have those pauses to actually let people think, because if you're asking them, think about this, imagine that, and you're continually talking over the top of it, actually, it's very hard to think those thoughts because you keep interrupting. So, yeah. yeah, the silence is as important as the talking. Definitely, definitely. Having been on the receiving end as well of many visualizations, it's like, you're just interrupting me all the time by telling me more, not you personally, but you know, people sorry, don't know, keep on banging out more and more detail, like shut up and leave me in peace. It also brings a really different energy into the room. Everyone's silent. Most people have got their eyes closed. They're thinking deeply. The person giving the visualization is often not putting on a voice or anything, but it's a sort of a very different sort of voice when you're telling that sort of story than when you're being an active facilitator getting people to move around different groups, taking stuff onto post-its and flip charts. It's a diff really different energy. And that comes across in the room. People are really slowing down and engaging in a different way. And we, I framed that deliberately at the beginning of the session where I made people aware of that. And I, you know, just to share the framing that I used at the beginning, I said to everyone in the room, you know, we spend our time rushing through our lives, dashing here. I know some of you had trouble trying to find the place, getting a place to park, the taxi was late. And we often arrive in meetings quite frazzled and our, our minds sort of racing and all over the place. So this session was a deliberate opportunity to slow down, to let our minds catch up with our bodies, to gather our thoughts. And again, that makes it comfortable for people because often, they're not used to coming into a big meeting with 50 people. They're used to it being, right, we've got an agenda to get through, go, 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 go. To shift into that space of, right, we're all gonna deliberately slow down. We're gonna be quiet, we're gonna stop talking and just take time to think our thoughts. Again, can be pushing at a bit of a, a cultural boundary for people of not being used to it. So that explanation at the beginning of time to gather your own thoughts is a way of making it comfortable for people and seem less strange and less threatening as it might feel. I'd like to take a moment just now to let you know about our next event. If you've been listening for a while, you'll know that most people are concerned about climate change and would like to make more sustainable choices in their lives. Despite this open door, most business sustainability initiatives fail to engage staff, and as a result, they miss their targets. 
The reason is that most initiatives don't pay enough attention to what genuinely motivates colleagues, nor do they recognise the barriers that hold back even the most highly motivated employees from taking action. On Wednesday the 22nd of May, join me and Jamie, the creator of the Most Sustainable Workplace Index, and learn how the index can help you tap into and unlock most employees' latent motivation to do the right thing for people and planet. You'll discover how the index can help you to gather hard evidence of what's working and what needs attention across locations and divisions and seniority levels. You'll identify the focus areas where the sustainability team, L&D, HR and so on should allocate time and resources to make the most progress. And you'll discover how you can demonstrate year-on-year -year progress with consistent and comparable data on sustainability culture. And you can use that for action planning, reporting, benchmarking and accreditation. Do join us on Wednesday the 22nd of May. You'll find the link in the show notes. Yeah, that, 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 that's so important. So visualisation, there's no talking apart from the person telling that story and no discussion. Again, people quite sort of find that a bit odd sometimes. So, but that led us straight into the next activity, which, which I led, which is the spectrum line. Again, one of our, another one of our great favorites. And I'll just explain a little bit about how that actually works. So while everyone's still sitting at their tables, I invited them to you know, reflecting on what Morag had just talked about and what they've been thinking. Each person to decide for themselves how likely they thought it was that that circular economy would be achieved by 2035. How likely it was that we'd achieve that by 2035. And to think about how likely would that be on a scale of one to 10? And to choose that for themselves, no discussion with anyone else at this point, just choose it for yourself and hold it in your head. And then we ask them to, ask them to stand up and move around the room to position themselves along the wall where we had the numbers one to 10 marked out along the long wall on big post-its to go and stand next to the number they'd chosen. And so what we had then was we had this, all this 50 people, 50, 60 people all spread out along that wall. And uh, as, as you pointed out, Morag, it's pretty much a perfect bell curve. And it was pretty much towards the, the high end, which was, which was really exciting. But and then I just invited people to explain why they'd chosen to stand where they had. I would you know, invite people in the middle to tell us why they'd chosen to stand there. So, and then turn to say, well, you know, someone at the other end, why have you chosen there? And then, you know, anyone who's not spoken like to say, well, why they've chosen that position. Anyone who's got a different reason for choosing that position. We didn't hear from all 50 or 60 people, but we heard a whole range of views. And they were just talking out into the room, you know, about their thoughts about why it was likely or not they would achieve 2035. And as they were doing that, Morag was capturing those sort of the key elements of what they were saying onto, onto large post-its as we as we went along, which was one of the less fun jobs that has to be done. What begins to emerge from that, and Osbert, you would have seen me doing this as we, we went along, that you start to identify groups of issues of that go into the accelerators and barriers might be a good way. So for the people who are at the optimistic end of the line, we were hearing things like, I have experience from the oil and gas industry and we never had a conversation like this. The fact that right at the beginning of this industry, you're all together having this conversation, that gives me a lot of optimism. 
And then at the other end of the line, you'd hear somebody saying, yeah, but I am less optimistic because I think this thing, this thing, this thing is going to happen. And that begins to give you an idea of how people are perceiving barriers to progress. So that enabled us, although people might think it's just people sharing their response to an imaginary story, it actually has a very focused purpose of helping us understand what people think will help and what people will think will hinder the achievement of the vision that we've all just been thinking about. And one of the other things which is really powerful and important is people, it's not just like a one-way thing with them telling us, people are hearing it between themselves in that group. So they're hearing from different parts of the industry, from different people from different professions talking about it, hearing, either they're hearing sort of very different perspectives from different, different places, or they're hearing quite similar things from different places. So we didn't get so much of it in this, this particular workshop, we get it in sometimes elsewhere, is sometimes that turns into a bit of a conversation between people. You have to be a little bit careful about that as facilitators, it doesn't dominate, but it can be quite useful sometimes to allow some of these issues to be, to be aired in that way, because it's a way of collectively exploring all these different thoughts and emotions and ideas that, that are in the room, which is really powerful. Definitely was. And the other thing that we deliberately built into this point of the programme was after we'd had the sort of group conversation of exploring the different issues, we went into an actual coffee break and we deliberately made that coffee break longer than it might otherwise have been by about 10 minutes. And again, we framed it very purposefully of telling everyone that the purpose that the coffee break was longer was to give them the opportunity to carry on the conversations that we've been having and to talk to each other about the issues that had come up. And you and I were, were in the workshop room, busily working through what we just heard in the previous session, but from the, the volume of discussion that we could hear going on, that was definitely lively and, and quite vibrant. And again, as can be sort of one of the, the trials and tribulations you face as a facilitator, trying to encourage people back into the room because they were so enthusiastically engaged in those conversations can take a little bit of effort. One of the key things with this as well is that you know, the, the intention with this particular workshop, like with many others, is that a self-selecting group of people would want to continue working together on this project. And so that was more likely to happen the more comfortable they felt with the other people who were already also wanting to work in this. So it's really important for them to you know, hear these different perspectives, to understand where people are coming from, and really start building up a level of trust. And they may not agree with everybody else in the room, but they can hear where they're coming from. They can see why they think what they, what they think. And that makes it much easier for them to say, yeah, I want to be involved in this, rather than being asked, step forward and join a steering group. And there's 50 people and you don't know anything about them or why they're there and what, what, what they're like. I think the final thing to say about the spectrum line is it's it's fun. People people really enjoy it. It brings a, a real energy to the room and a very different sort of energy from that sort of slowing down reflective energy the, from the from the visualization process. This is a active, engaged sort of energy. And partly because most people are standing up during this activity, which is a completely different sort of energy from sitting around your cabaret style table filling in post-its. That I think is is really important, and it's disruptive. It's doing things differently, breaking some norms, which again really help 
people think differently a bit and you know maybe do things they wouldn't otherwise do in terms of making commitments and and so on to take a a sort of step back we are talking in detail about the process but actually some underpinning principles to it one phrase that I use a lot is if you do what you've always done you'll get what you've always got and a lot of what we're doing in sustainability is about trying to bring forward things that are new or different have not been done before so the word you used just there Osbert is disruption is a really useful one And whenever we have done sort of change processes, if we look back at the sort of key underpinning things that happen, the sort of four key elements to it, which is what you're actually trying to create. So the first one is you're trying to create time and space away from business as usual, where you can give thought and time to the thing that you need to consider. The second one is disruption of breaking that pattern breaking the way that we would all usually work. And as you say, normally we're all sitting around tables discussing, or more often than not, we're sitting around listening to someone at the front tell us stuff. So those things we've already talked about where you know, everybody's talking, where you get up and you move around, help do that gentle disruption of expectations. And then the thing that we talked about in the guided visualisation, some time to actually think and examine your own thoughts around this is really important. And then that final part, the opportunity to share and hear from other people, but also to be heard. So those are four key underpinning principles that are going on in the room all the time. And there are lots of different facilitation techniques that you can use to achieve these things. And they go from half day workshops like we're talking about here to the full week that we do as part of our accelerator program. But yeah, that I think that's one worth sharing just so people have a, a bit of an insight into what the, the foundations of this are. That's really helpful. And the final bit, there's no sort of fun or interesting activities, particularly involved in this bit, but this was you know, taking people from, they've had these insights and then inviting them to step forward and uh, yeah, you know, join join one of the working groups. That was interesting because of the way things had worked out, the sort of issues that came out of the spectrum line activity, we had to sort of change our plans on the hoof a little bit, which you picked up and led that led that really nicely, Morag. So could you remember how did we get from people saying all this stuff to lots of people signing up to take part in the project? Absolutely. So we've talked about this in other podcasts that we've done, that once you've opened up those conversations and begun to start to hear where people are from, the next step is sense making, making sense out of all the things that you've heard. So for me, key processes that I was going through. So all the things that came out of people sharing where they were on that spectrum line and how optimistic or pessimistic they were thinking about them. First one was to start putting things together in groups. And you did find that there was a sort of commonality behind things. We ended up with about five groups. The next thing I was looking at is all the discussions that had happened to that point. So the things that Paul had said in his introductory framing session about issues that had already come up and clusters of work that they felt needed to be done. And actually, there was quite a clear mapping between what the previous groupings had said needed to be done and the issues that were coming up. So we grouped those two together. But we also found that there was a whole new group of work that had emerged that hadn't been discussed before. And this is an entirely natural part of, as 
every time your group grows, as you bring more people on board, there'll be more perspectives. So there's probably more things that you haven't thought of that need to be dealt with. So that's what we did. So having put these things into groups, there was then a bit more of the, the grounding and levelling for the, the next session, which was me doing a bit of an introduction of, OK, here's what came out of the last session and here's the groups that we've arrived at. Here's how they link to what we've said previously. So once we'd identified the groups and explained them to everyone how they came about, we set up a different table around the room for each one of those groups of issues that had come up. Then we encourage people to get up, move around and go sit at the table with the group that they're most interested in. So that does two things. First up, it begins to bring together people with the shared interest again. And the second thing is it gives them a further opportunity to start digging into the detail there and what needs to happen next. And as you said about other sessions, to stop this just becoming a talking shop where people just randomly talk through the issue, setting the key question and the framing for the discussion and a constrained time to do it in was really important. So the framing that I used on this particular occasion because it suited the question was framed in terms of X, Y, Z. And the question was, in order for us to have a circular economy, X needs to happen, Y needs to be done to make it happen, and Z are the people who need to be involved. And then we said, look at the issue that you've got on your table. What is your X, Y, and Z here? What X needs to happen to be able to move this thing forward? Why the key things that are needed to make that happen and Z who needs to be involved here? And emphasize to people that I need to be involved was a perfectly legitimate answer in that space. And again, by having that clear framing and that discipline and that time and able to focus people really in on the what, the key things that needed to be done, how they would be done and who would be involved in doing them. Yeah, and I think that, that XYZ statement was really, really helpful in like nailing it down as to what actually you're asking people to do. And I think the other thing which was useful about that process is it got people again to physically get up and to choose by moving their body which area they were interested in which is, I think, is a quite a different sort of emotional and psychological experience than just putting a blue dot against, against a flip chart. And they were actually then in that group having that discussion. Yeah, you literally physically chose to be in the discussion that you were in. And the other thing that it started to do is, again, you had groupings coming together with a shared interest and start to talk. And the next step of that process was going, right, we're looking at setting up working groups around each of these issues who would be interested in working in the working group and people who had naturally been drawn to that issue tended to be the ones who put themselves forward and going, actually, I would be interested in carrying on talking about this. Again, we set clear framing of the people at NMIS, the National Manufacturing Institute of Scotland, were willing to do secretariat and help pull together meetings of these groupings, but very much with the clear instruction that they would convene the meeting, but it was up to others to actively contribute and start moving this forward. Yeah, I think that framing was, again, really helpful so people know exactly what it is they're stepping into when they're being invited. And it was it was an invitation. But I think very often in meetings and workshops, people sort of feel 
reluctant to volunteer ideas or whatever, because then they'll be volunteered, often in a quite humorous sort of way. Oh, Morag, you're interested, in, you're interested in this. You'll be on the group, won't you? And it's like, well, no, people need to be able to contribute their ideas without feeling they're going to have their arm twisted. So we were very clear, this is an invitation to take part, to join, to get involved in the, these, these working groups and so on. But in a subtle sort of way, because we'd actually got people sitting around tables talking about exactly the issues that were relevant to the emerging <laughs> steering groups, they'd almost sort of self-selected anyway. And essentially what we'd done in those groups is we'd started the conversations that needed to happen in the working groups. So they had begun to model for themselves what doing this, what this process, what being involved would look like. And as we find in any group, there were people who could clearly see and you know had a vision for how this could be and were actively contributing. And there are people who were much more in the learning space of understanding what was going on and what was needed in this space. And maybe not feeling they could contribute to it just yet, but certainly starting to build their enthusiasm and their interest in it to enable them, if the time is right for them later, to step back into the process and become more actively involved. Yeah, I think many of those people, you know, were seriously interested and excited by the project. Just weren't clear what they could offer, or they knew that they had lots of other commitments and stuff, and they wouldn't be able to put themselves into it wholeheartedly. So that was, yeah, that was that was really healthy. And this was something that was a, a key thing for us to take away. And as you, if you remember, right back to what we decided success looked like, so. I think we did get more than 10 people who actively put themselves forward to be involved in both the steering group and the working groups. And for most of the rest, we did have people who wanted to stay involved through a, an emailing list. So as the activity evolved and began to coalesce and become more concrete, they would be able to step back in. And I know for some of the people who were organising this process, they were quite anxious about the sort of mailing list kind of dynamic because this needs to be an active piece of work this is only going to happen if people step forward and make it happen there's nobody who's going to do it on our behalf so there can't be any passengers on this but that idea of as you say not everybody's ready to commit right now but if we keep them in the loop they are able to commit later and that's a really important dynamic to remember so that was essentially the last sort of wrapping up bit of our participation, because at that point, we had someone from NMIS at each of those tables starting to take down names and emails and all the rest of it. But there was one really important part, which we had got Paul from NMIS sort of set up to do, which was, which was the closing, wrapping up the session. It's really important there's a strong close to any workshop like this, particularly when there's a sense that something is going to carry on and people really need to know what exactly what's what's going on there so and Paul did a great job of that and again this final section is another round of that sense making the people have been through a conversation they've had lots of exciting conversations and sometimes it's quite easy to lose a little bit of focus about what happened so again that bit at the end We've already talked about storytelling in one context, but this is storytelling in another, of telling the story of what we've just done today. And then, as you say, the what happens next. So we all came together today, 
we looked at doing this, we talked about that, we've come together and identified the key issues. This is what needs to happen next. Here's what we are going to do. Here's how it will happen. Here's how you stay involved. And that is a very, very important part of closing the process to make sure all that momentum that you've built up isn't lost. Everybody's leaving absolutely crystal clear about what happened, where we're going, what happens next. And I would add to that is that they feel really clear that their contribution and participation has been valued and has added to the day, not in a glib sort of way, you know, thanks everyone for coming, been really helpful. Paul did this really well. This process has emerged from everyone's participation, the discussions we've had, it's really moved us forward. So people are really feeling not just, you know, sort of ownership, but a sense that their time and energy and attention has been valued and is, and is useful and is leading in a, a really positive direction. Absolutely. That getting buy-in from people, that they're not being asked to get on board with somebody else's thing, but that feeling that you have actually actively contributed to shaping and moving this thing forward. You have a stake in it. It's been shaped by your thinking, your perspective, your ideas is really, really important in this kind of group process that is so pivotal to sustainability leadership and moving forward our organization's sustainability journeys. So those are the main points I think we wanted to cover more. Right? Is there anything else that we should highlight or emphasize before we close? One thing I just want to share with people, and again, this has come up when I've talked about facilitation and when people have seen it done, it sometimes looks like some kind of magical art that these people who are trained facilitators do these techniques that you've never seen before and it all seems very mysterious. These things are not mysterious. Facilitators all over the world use these. If you read any book on facilitation, the stuff that Osbert and I have just talked about in this podcast are really familiar standard things. So in terms of one resource I would share with you all of my sort of go-to of remembering all the different facilitation techniques that I use is a very old book. I was just looking at the back of it here. I think I bought this in 2007. Is that old? And it's called The Facilitator's Guide to Participatory Decision-Making by the author Sam Kaner. And that's Kaner spelled K-A-N-E-R. It's a standard text for facilitators. It's old, but it's great. And if you want to get started in these things, and you've never really come across this facilitation before, and you need a little bit more confidence and a bit more handholding of how to do it, this is the place I would recommend that you start. I think the key thing to remember as a facilitator, and I've learned this the hard way myself, is your job is to help people make decisions or to take actions. It's not to tell them what to do or to take them towards a predetermined outcome. I think it's quite easy to allow yourself to be sometimes dragooned into facilitating a process where it's expected you're going to take people towards a particular outcome. And that just ruins the whole thing. It doesn't work for anyone else. It doesn't work for you. So I think being really clear about what your role as facilitator is, it's to support the people in the room as well as the agenda of the meeting. And again, as a, a way for you to get started, if you're interested in doing this kind of thing, have a look at our podcast, Inspire and Engage Your Board, Senior Managers and Colleagues, where we give a step-by-step -step guide to running a sustainability workshop 
with facilitation instructions and notes as you go along. So something to get you started. I've forgotten about that one. Let's leave it there. Thanks, Morag. You're very welcome. And there you have it. I hope you've discovered some new tools and approaches that you can apply when you lead workshops and other events. You'll find details and links to resources in the show notes at realize.earth slash 116. That's realize with an S. If those tips and guidance aren't quite enough, and you'd like professional help to design and facilitate a workshop, whether it's a standalone event like we did for Quick, or part of a larger conference or programme, we'd be happy to help. Contact me via our website, realize.earth. I'm Osbert Lancaster, and I hope this episode of Leadership for Sustainability will help you lead on sustainability in your organisation. What you're doing is so important, now more than ever. Be sure to look after yourself. Bye for now.